to single-handedly saving our clients. Yes. <laughs> One arm, inside, Diana. Inside joke. So, well, inside your arm. <laughs> on one of our previous podcasts, we talked about wanting to do, you know, sort of a, another case study of a case we did recently where we don't have a judgment, but there's a number of factors that are concerning in understanding certain aspects of the law. So, just to set this up, this is a case where it involves an allegation from a young person, so under the age of 18, that an older person uh, had. Um, on several occasions over the course of a summer, um, brought her into his trailer and committed some sexual acts. And a lot of the defense was uh, factored around um, the environment in which this is alleged to have happened. This was alleged to have happened during the day in full sunlight where people are all out and about. With all the windows open. Clear area within the uh, trailer that um, the windows are open, they're not closed. so. The, the notion of sort of privacy and isolation is really out, pardon me, out the window on that one. But um, there's a couple of interesting factors you deal with on cases where, um, where you have this allegation and on its face it has this, um, uh, you know, either intoxicating or insidious sort of lure to saying, why would somebody lie about this if it didn't happen? What? Why on earth would they ever bring this up? So what's their motive to lie? And that's juxtaposed with somebody saying, you know, I didn't do this. Um, I, I really didn't have the opportunity to do this. And it's such a high risk act. Like what, we think I'm insane? Right. I didn't do it. So that's sort of an interesting fact scenario. And I think it's important for us to talk about a few things. So to break it down, we have our whiteboard. Uh-huh. It it gets kind of complicated in terms of motive. First of all, everybody kind of has in the back of their head, they want to know why would somebody lie. Mm -hmm. Always. It it benefits the defense if we can point to a motive, but there isn't always a clear motive. And this is one of those cases where we were like forthright, we're not suggesting a motive. And there's some really good case law when defense doesn't put a motive on the table, that it's not proper to, to ask why would the complainant lie. And there's a really strong case on that. But when the defense does suggest a motive, that can change things and it gets really complicated between, there's a difference between uh, no known motive to lie and mm-hmm. a proven absence of motive to lie. Yeah, so let's say that's lower and I'm not as optimistic or I'm not, I'm not on the same level of happiness with the case law as you are. Yeah. But let's, let's first my talk about... My understanding of the difference is that uh, an, uh, an absence of motive to lie, an un- unknown reason why they would lie, um, basically just takes it off the table. Even if defense suggests a motive and, then, and the, the trier of fact, be it a judge or jury, is like, yeah, I'm not really sure about that. It just mm-hmm. takes it off the table. Um, but it doesn't benefit, it doesn't bolster the complainant's uh, credibility if they okay. don't believe the motive. Repeat that. Yeah. So, and then I want to muddy the waters with you reading a certain paragraph yeah, from a decision. So, and this is prior to a decision that came out, which has kind of, I, I think, muddied the waters a little further. But prior, you could suggest a motive to lie. And if the trier of fact, be it a judge or a jury, mm-hmm. says, yeah, I'm not really sure, it just takes it off the table it in terms of, yeah. But it does not bolster the credibility and add to the credibility of the complainant if they don't believe that that motive existed. Then the difference is a proven absence of motive generally amounts to the prosecutor 
showing that, uh, and the evidence of the complainants showing that they in fact suffered from making the allegation and had zero benefit from making the allegation, which can then be seen as a proven absence of motive. Which is very strong. And that's very strong in, in, in terms of bolstering their credibility. Okay, so I want to go on to some things, but first of all, let's just read from Ignacio, which is a decision, a 2021 decision. Or, uh, no, I want to. Um, We're going to read from Bat, which is cited well, but it, but in Ignacio. Cited in Ignacio. Yeah. But so I just want to frame this. So it's it's a case from 2021, the Ontario Court of Appeal. They're referring back at paragraph 40. I'm just laughing right now because I'm looking at Max's face, and he's just like, "Okay, I'm going to have to get all these citations from you." We'll get we'll get the citations. <laughs> we'll take care of you, Max. I promise. Yeah, but. Uh, paragraph 40, take it away. The, the court is citing another case and reading something important, right. so go ahead. So this is important. This is uh, more muddying of the waters by Justice Doherty, who's a, who's a great guy, but this this is dangerous what he talks about here. So BAT, for Max's uh, benefit, is a 2000 case, Court of Appeal. B-A-T-T-E. B-A-T-T-E, 49-O-R, 3-3-21. So... No problem. <laughs> now back to our regular programming. <laughs> in BAT, the appellant was convicted of sexual offenses in relation to two complainants. Among other things, though, the, the appellant argued that the trial judge erred in instructing the jury that they could ask themselves why the complainants would have fabricated the allegations and subjected themselves to the trial process. Now, at trial, the defense had argued the complainants hated the appellant and hate and their hatred motivated them to fabricate the allegations. So here's how Doherty re resolves all of this. He confirms, and I'll read this slowly because it's important, yeah. juries are entitled to consider whether there is an absence of motive to fabricate, and he identified problems for judges, for trial judges, to avoid in instructing on this issue. And he says, uh, this is at paragraphs 120 and 121 of the BAT judgment again. It is difficult to think of a factor which, as a matter of common sense and life experience, would be more germane to a witness's credibility than the existence of a motive to fabricate evidence. Similarly, the absence of any reason to make a false, false allegation is a factor which juries, using their common sense, will and should consider in assessing a witness's credibility. And what he, what he goes on to say, and this is the important part, what must be avoided in instructing a jury is any suggestion that the accused has an onus, onus to demonstrate that the complainant has a motive to fabricate the evidence. I'll repeat that again, because again, it's critical. And also kind of confusing given the earlier right. statements. Right. What must be avoided when you're instructing a jury is any suggestion that the accused has an onus to demonstrate that the complainant has a motive to fabricate the evidence and that the absence of a demonstrative motive to fabricate necessarily means that there was no motive or finally that the absence of a motive to fabricate conclus conclusively establishes the witness is telling the truth. That's a lot in that paragraph. Mm -hmm. and then, so let's break it down. Wait, but th and then the underline, the last sentence, the presence or absence of a motive to fabricate is only one factor to be considered in assessing credibility. Dan, over to you, break it down. Okay, well, first of all, it, it, it comes across as very convoluted because they're saying that um, a prosecutor 
can can argue that there's an absence of motive, even if not a proven absence of motive. Right. And and yet they're simultaneously saying that there's no onus on the accused to show a motive. That's right. So you're saying, oh well, you know, it, it, and the reality is, is the the previous case law, especially a case called Cusk, which is fabulous. So that it's so insidious when you ask an accused person why would why, they lie? Of course, because it, it's a, such a subtle reversal of the burden it's of proof. It's not subtle; it's a complete reversal. That, that people are confused by it all the time. Right. So I don't, you know, this the way it's worded, and I don't know if you could have worded it better to make it more clear. But the way it comes across and, and the way it's being mm -hmm. cited is, it's it's to me very contradictory. Where they're saying. You know the accused doesn't have to prove something yet. The prosecutor can put it put it out there out there Right, and then the of course that puts the burden on the accused to try and to then counter it. it. Yeah counter it So that's the problem with that and and the, the problem is that there are so many cases Where it's really unclear and in fact, we've talked about studies on why people who admit that they've lied When they're asked why they did it the second top reason was they don't even know Right. So if they don't even know, how is the accused person going to identify it or, or, or prove it? Cause, because there is no clear motive. And, and at what point can you say a prosecutor has gone from showing that there's an absence of motive to a proven absence of motive? How do you, how yeah, do you how decide do you, where that line is? How do you, what okay, is so that let's line? Just, let's just, that's an important thing. But let's just throw in for one second mm -hmm. the definition of a proven absence to motive. That would be helpful. Just so we have that for everybody. And um, so a proven absence of motive is a situation where the Crown has established, and you alluded to this earlier, mm -hmm. that the Crown has established at a fairly high threshold that there is a proven absence of motive to fabricate. And that type of evidence can take several forms. So the complainant by coming forward with an allegation has, as you said, suffered. And that could be- And gained nothing. And gained nothing, and not only gained nothing, lost something. Lost, yeah. So this could be within a family where coming forward with an allegation, it has broken the family apart. Mm -hmm. As a result of breaking the family apart, the complainant may have become ostracized and therefore disconnected to various family members or maybe all family members that they have suffered um, maybe the loss of friends or important friendships. Social circles. Social circles. And that it wasn't unpredictable that this would have happened. It was pretty clear that, that you know, making this ac accusation in the beginning that the complainant was aware that this was going to be... Stuff would happen. ...difficult for yeah. them. Yeah. That's an excellent point. So what you're saying is the complainant was aware at the time that they came forward that by doing this, there will be repercussions for coming forward with this allegation that will bring apart negative implications for the complainant. If that is established, that, as it says in the case law, you know, Ignacio and SSS, I guess, mm -hmm. that it is a fairly strong platform on which the trier of fact, whether it's a judge or jury, could find that the complainant is indeed telling the truth. And that more, can more carry credible. the day. Yeah. Is more credible, and that can carry the day. It's a factor, though, let's remember that. It's more than an a factor. The specific language, and this is something we gotta be really clear about. Yeah. Let me find... Although it, although you cannot say that the willingness to testify shows... Yeah, equals. E yeah. Equals an absence of motive. Like, just, right. just the fact that somebody's willing to testify cannot be used to bolster their credibility. Right. Yeah, so let me just find the exact language, because it's, it's extremely important language. 
it's a, it, in fact, I, I think he said it's a strong platform in which to conclude that the complainant is telling the truth. And um, I think that's an SS, which speaks about it. SSS. SSS. And we'll give the quotation for that to be as well. That means it's more than just a factor to consider. It's a big, big issue. But again, it, it is a very difficult situation for an accused person to try and identify because you know they, they can't be inside of a complainant's mind. So it's difficult for you to figure out what some of these motives are. And in fact, you know, there's a fair bit of evidence that people are very, very bad at understanding their own motives. Human beings in general. Uh, tend to do a lot of things without really understanding their motives and maybe in hindsight later on they can figure it out but but um, for for a third party to try and figure out why another person has a certain motive uh, to do something is, is an incredibly difficult situation it's almost like asking somebody to prove a negative well yeah it's a crapshoot how are you supposed to know okay so I, I think I'm going to harp on this for this episode because it's extremely important for, you know, people ask us questions or viewers about evidence and they like when we do this. So let, let's divide this up. If the Crown can establish on a high threshold an absence of a motive to fabricate based on the evidence that we've suggested, that's a strong platform for a court to consider that the complainant is credible, period. It's more than just one factor. Right. It is. Because on the other side, you may have a denial or a consent issue, but regardless, it can carry the day. It is, as they've said, a very strong platform. Well, in and, the, and in the credibility the decision-making process, it's not determinative, but it's it's a big factor. The the test still has to apply. All the evidence still has to so be So let weighed. me just read this, because I, I want to... I just I it puts the defense, I think these decisions put the defense a little bit more on warning, too, that if you're going to suggest a motive, be very careful that you've fleshed out your motive well. Well, what the court tries to do, and, and, and this is where we get into some complication here, is to say where an accused specifically does not raise an issue of motive to fabricate, then um, a lack of motive to fabricate could be neutral, but it's right. not. Right. Okay? And I want to be careful about this, okay? Because I've, as long as you've known me, I've said, you need motive to fabricate, right? Have I not? Right, yeah. That's one of the things we look for. But yeah, right. it, it, has to be, it has to be very careful about how you suggest it. And also not just what you're suggesting, but the timing. Because if you, if you allege that a motive was fabricated, the motive to fabricate occurred at a certain moment, then even if it was a moment in the past, it's called recent fabrication. And it opens the door for the Crown to call prior consistent statements that could show that the allegation was made before you're alleging the motive occurred. Correct, but, yeah. but as and a this is, I know that starts getting complicated, but, no, but, and, but and this our, is, our, I think, important for everybody because this is one of the big things. It's like everybody, um, you know, who hears an allegation, if you try to say, well, how do you know it's true? They go, why would they well, lie? That's the first everybody question. always, that that's the, the very first, first question. question always asked. And, and in fact, we cannot be stupid and think when we're running a jury trial, they're not thinking of that. Of course they're thinking And that. some judges are thinking about it no matter what. Exactly. Okay? So let's just, let's look at page, paragraph 31 of Ignacio and onward. I just want to get the language and then I want to just discuss this for a moment. Because you, we deal predominantly with cases where we on balance establish a fabrication. Where we can say in a good, a statistically significant portion of our cases, we have shown 
false allegations, and we're confident in that. We don't say that lightly, okay? Right. No. Now, the first part of the appellant's argument is that the trial judge made a positive finding that the complainant had no motive to fabricate when the evidence did not permit him to do so, okay? So this was on appeal. While the cases leave open the possibility that the Crown can prove that a complainant had no motive to fabricate, they set a high bar for proving no motive to fabricate. This is because of what you say, motives can remain hidden or there may be no motive at all. It's pause. So, you raised an excellent point and we've discussed this before when we had that study and this is why we're, we're desperate to have some academic research now, rigorous academic research, because people can come forward and say, at the end of the day, when it's a false allegation, they don't know why they made it. Mm -hmm. So we can't presume we understand psychology of anybody to any certain degree that we're going to ruin people's lives. I think we have to be very careful as to what people's hidden agendas and motives are. Mm -hmm. But the court says clearly that there is this high bar. If the Crown has proven that the complainant had no motive to fabricate, the Crown has a powerful platform to assert that the complainant must be telling the truth. Bartholomew at paragraph 21. However, in most cases, the trier fact will be faced instead with an absence of evidence of any motive to fabricate on the part of the complainant. So, we know there's one category. Right. If the Crown is able to establish that there is no motive to fabricate, and we based it upon what we spoke mm -hmm. about, and I know I'm being repetitive, this is a powerful platform for the Crown to assert that the complainant must be telling the truth. Dangerous right. and live issue at play in criminal sexual assault trials. Now, let's go back. Where there is not that proven by the Crown, and the defense has raised an issue to fabricate, saying the complainant hated him and wanted to achieve X, Y, and Z, the absence of a mo so, and let's say the trial judge or jury would reject that. We don't know what juries do, but let's just presume we do, that they rejected that in an instruction to a jury or a judge's instruction to themselves, they still can consider a, no motive to fabricate as one factor. Mm -hmm. And Ignacio reinforces what has been in place for well over 23 years, that although an accused has no onus to demonstrate that the complainant has a motive to fabricate evidence, the absence of a demonstrated motive to fabricate means that there was no motive, but the presence or absence of a motive to fabricate can and is only one factor to be considered in assessing credibility. So here's the problem. Whether you assert it or not, whether you establish it or not, right. it's still one factor. And this is why I've said in these cases, and I've been doing we've been doing this for five six years What's now an argument about on. weight how much weight right. can how be much put on it? to it and these cases are dangerous about how much weight can be put on it even when it's not a proven absence what does it mean it's one factor what the f does that mean the reality it means if you can't establish some sort of fabrication and at best you're relying on um you know a denial you're that it almost automatically reverses the burden of proof. With and, and they specifically say you have no onus. I I, re I repeated this. Right, right. You know there is no onus to disprove a, a motive to fabricate or prove a motive to fabricate. But 
the absence of a motive still can be considered as one factor in assessing credibility. Right. So we so we worked on a case that had that difficult aspect where there wasn't an obvious motive to fabricate and we didn't suggest one. So we don't know why she's right. doing it. Why? Right? We don't know. But there were some other combinations that, that create some really difficult problems for an accused person, especially in cases where it really is just a he said, she, she said, said she kind says, of case. Yep. And so one is um, possibilities, which I'll get into. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and the other is opportunity. So this is one of the things that we addressed in the case that we were working on is, mm-hmm. you know, he's saying, well, sh- sure, I probably was alone at some point or another. I'm not, not saying it, it. Yeah. Yeah. You're not saying it, it, it could never have happened. Right. But just simply because, and there was a good case that I think the, the Crown brought up as well, that um, that uh, talks about opportunity and how you can't make assumptions just because somebody had an opportunity, you can't assume that they would have taken the risk to, to um, take advantage of that. Right, or that that type of offender would necessarily engage yeah. in high risk And activity. I think that's the CG case had a really good paragraph on that saying that you can't assume just because people who do commit sexual, sexual assaults take, you know, do engage in high risk behavior just because- It's there. Burr, you, you, yeah. you drew our attention to yeah. paragraph 46 on CG. Right. And it might be helpful if you just sort of read it a little yeah, bit. And then we debate it. I, I'll, I'll give you my CG afterward. It's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. So this is Regina versus CG. It's 2021 decision. Um, uh, it, OJ6434, but we'll have the citation. We but always just, do. But it, paragraph 46 is important. And then I want to frame this argument and tie it back to the motive issue, tie it back to our case study, and just and just establish how hard certain issues may be. Yeah, and this involves like a a stereotype and assumption about, you know, what real rapists would do, which are just as uh, insidious as assumptions about what real victims would do. You're gonna like the paragraph. Yeah, I know. You're gonna 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 like this one. But but here's the preview to the paragraph I'm about to read. I love Justice Watts' uh, words. This is uh, from- uh, I've always enjoyed Justice Watts' writing. He's great, he's great. This is a case of John, 2017, Ontario Court of Appeals, 622. Uh, I just this this phrase this this phrase summarizes this episode. Justice Watts says, "The distinction between absence of evidence of a motive to fabricate and absence of a motive to fabricate is not easily digestible." Like that that just sums it all up. It's it's hard to understand. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what you were saying, Diana. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? C- you know, credit to just Justice Watts. Yeah. I mean, his writing's always been amazing. Right. Not that Doherty's writing isn't no, excellent. No. I mean, he's a he's a brilliant thinker and writer. But, but what puts it in plain terms? Yeah, yeah, so how do you digest that? How do you, how do you, how do you yeah. explain that? How do you explain that to a jury? How do you, how do you explain that Even to, to judges. And Even that's to a judge, saying. yeah. It's very difficult. Now, just, just go into paragraph yeah, 46. Yeah, I'm going to go into 46. And then I want to tie this all together. Okay, I'm going to read a lot of this because it's important, so I'll read it slowly. So this is, again, from CG. Sorry for boring you with this, but like... This is important, important stuff, folks. If you don't want to listen, tune out now, but... I suggest you no, stay. No, don't say don't tune out. No, I say they won't tune out. They're going to stay because this is like we've led up to this moment. This this is the moment of the podcast. I hope it is at least. No, it's not. But it's, it's close. Not, it's close. It's getting there. It's like uh, the sequel the almost. Stereotypes about accused people. Is that where we're so going? Like, I'm yeah. not telling you. You have to listen. Yeah. Okay. Paragraph like 46 from this judgment. I'll pretend to be the judge now. It is unclear to me how the trial judge may have used his view on this point in deciding this case. It cannot be reasonably sorry it cannot reasonably be disputed that some sex offenders take incredible risks 
and trial judges are entitled to reject an implausibility argument that is based on the unlikelihood that the accused would have taken the risks required to commit the offense with which they are charged. Interesting. Going on. But here, the trial judge appears to be expressing a universal truth that all sex offenders take incredible risks. Red flags, folks which would constitute an appropriate stereotype about how sex offenders behave. Even if the trial judge was not intending to express a universal truth, he was at least of the view that incredible risk-taking is commonplace. Where he got that? I don't know, but in any event, continuing. If that was the trial judge's approach, then he erred in doing so. No sh Sherlock. Sorry, bleep that. Not only is it arguable that this too, would be an inappropriate stereotype about how sex offenders behave, judicial notice cannot be taken of such a contention as if it were a fact. Assuming such a fact could be established, it would require a proper evidentiary foundation. Yes. A third possibility is that the trial judge was relying on his personal knowledge or her personal knowledge, unless the criteria sorry, personal logic, experiencing as the proven fact, this would also be an error, a trial judge cannot judicially notice a fact within his or her personal knowledge unless the criteria of notoriety or immediate demonstrability are present. In either event, while the tri trial judge mentions the risk point in the final paragraphs of his reasons, he fails to deal with it. Of course, over to you. So just yeah. to just to kind of summarize a little bit, there, there was a high risk that the judge was using inappropriate stereotypes to say that because it was high risk that it was more likely that, that the person would, would commit a sexual committed offense. The sexual yeah. assault just because there's an assumption that, that rapists are high risk and therefore They're the higher the risk that was taken, the more likely, likely that it happened. Would, yeah. So that's the false logic that was being employed potentially being employed. Right. It was unclear because of the, the way the reasoning was, was written out. And that is a really big problem in a lot of cases, especially where somebody is accused of assaulting somebody who lived in the same home. And then of course the opportunity does exist. Right. And just the mere opportunity existing does not tell us anything about whether or not it really happened. But and isn't it, it scary that this kind of thought process is still taking place? Well, I know, and, and there's it's been like, a number of court of appeal decisions that involved that as a ground of appeal. That the judge, you know, was very seemed to be very clear in their wording that they they found the person was guilty because the opportunity existed. Sorry, I was on the phone just managing a bail hearing for tomorrow. <laughs> we, okay, so we, we take care of our clients. So this is really frightening. So. I just say this. So this was a very good paragraph where they said, "Look, there's no, there's no myth about how somebody who is a real or you know legitimate sex offender would behave, and 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 whether they would always engage in high risk behavior." Um, so that's a good thing. But let's tie this into motive. But it's also important to point out that there's stereotypes about accused people, not just about complainants. Right. That there are active stereotypes about accused people that that infect the reasoning and and you know result in wrongful convictions. And there's been you know very good case law recently about you know male sexual stereotypes, male aggression. Just because there's an opportunity doesn't mean a male will take it. But all that being said. You have a case, right or wrong, okay? We're not judging anything, but you have a case where there's an allegation and on its face, you're like, everybody sits down and goes like, I, 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 I don't have a motive to fabricate here. I can't see one. 
on its face it seems like a reasonable accusation. Then you have an accused who, like in our circumstances, um, significantly older, retirement age, no history, great marriage, everything's fine, friends in a, in a situation and a milieu where there's people all around, highly unbelievable that it would happen during the day, where a person doesn't even close blinds, where neighbors come visit, neighbors come visit all the time without even announcing. Right. Nobody, you know, um, it, it, you know, goes by ceremony and knocks or right. calls yeah. there, makes a time. And and in circumstances also where the complainant has said, whenever I was there, there was always people around. Not necessarily in the trailer, but in the vicinity. So it's not a, a case of isolation. Yeah. There's no history or real history of trying to groom or isolate the person. And so you're left with the inevitable. Why would somebody make this accusation up? Upper and, case, and, upper case. Yeah, and, and, and based upon the language that we have from the Court of Appeal, you can consider, and it can be argued to say, you know, there is no real argument here about what, why would this person make this up? It's just one factor I can consider. Of course, the accused doesn't have to prove a motive, doesn't have to, you know, disprove, you know, a motive, however way you want to put it. But it's out there. maybe, you know, I can consider uh, that there's no absence here. And so you're really in a very difficult conundrum. How do you defend against that? Because there can be legitimate cases where for no apparent reason, somebody makes a false allegation. We have found time and time again, some people don't know why they say it. Sometimes you don't have enough information to dig to find it. Could be the complainant wants attention and you can't get that out in the evidence. Maybe there's some other psychological emotional issue that's satisfied by making this allegation that we don't have access to. We don't know much about these people's lives. We know so far less about a complainant's life, even more so now, because of what's, what we're restricted in asking. So based upon one hour's worth of testimony, a 45-minute statement, the absence of finding a motive in the face of just a denial where you're arguing plausibility. And this case, CG has said very clearly, I'll just raise this again, that in fact, a court can reject a defense based upon simply saying there is no possibility or it would be high risk. That in and of itself really is not much of a defense. Right. You can consider it, but like you know, it's not that much of a defense. Right. It puts a person in a very, very difficult situation when you can't pinpoint a motive to fabricate. And you bring up a word that there was a case that I'd printed out and I, you know, it's too lengthy. I was laughing out loud about some of the stuff, but it has to do with possibilities. So you brought up that word, possibility. And there was this really interesting case and it's translated from French. So I'm not even gonna give the citation because it's just a translation, a rough translation. But that was the biggest issue was like, if you say, well, is it possible? And in this case, the prosecutor put to the accused person, was it possible this thing happened? And then the, the jury came back and said, 
Well, if somebody says that, you know, something might have been possible, is that the same as saying that it's true? Yeah, it's true, yeah. It can, can that be seen as a fact? And it turned into this massive philosophical argument God. that was so convoluted it's unbelievable. And the Court of Appeal overturned the, the conviction and, and granted a new trial on, on the grounds of the jury not being instructed pro properly. But possibility, you know, I've said to people before, you know, um, because because it's difficult to understand the language used when people frame questions, when lawyers frame questions. Mm -hmm. And it's different when you're being asked questions by the person who called you, we have the prosecutor's witness that's in chief when they ask questions and then we cross-examine. And in cross-examination, you can put things to uh, mm -hmm. somebody and sometimes you, you must put things to somebody. And you'll say, well, isn't it true this thing happened? But I said, always watch out for possibilities because in the end, this is your life you want to try and testify to the things you know. Right. So, you know, for me, I'm just like, is something possible? Well, you know what? I, I don't want to talk about possibilities. I want to talk yeah. about the things I know, right? Not rolling the but dice in this, on in this particular yeah. case, and the reason I say that is because I've seen cases like this where questions about possibilities end up becoming this big trap, where then it's just like, oh, well, something, well, sure, it could be possible. And then all of a sudden that gets transformed as some sort of fact-finding. Right. And they're very clear that the case law on it is that um, from the Supreme Court, even a possibility doesn't tell you anything about the facts in the case. Absolutely nothing. This is not an easy area of law. No. I know. Until next time, guys. Thank yeah. you. Um, it's difficult, and I think we have to keep plotting away at how we deal with this and, and how we try and prevent wrongful convictions. I know. And it's very possible people are going to love this episode. And if you do so, <laughs> then like, subscribe, hit notifications. Leave comments and... Uh, and send us emails again about what you want to hear from. That's really great. Thank you. Watch it a few times. It might become more digestible mm -hmm. in the words of Justice Watt. <laughs> yeah.